Would you like to turn to Luke chapter 22? As Davy was just saying, we're, um, we're back in Luke, um, finishing the final leg of our Luke series, working through the third gospel, the third biography of Jesus in the New Testament. Last time, when we brought a pause to our Luke series, was last Easter. Madly, we've done three different sermon series since then. And here we are, the final leg, which will take us up to and just beyond Easter itself, which is a bit early this year, happens at the end of March. April, we're going to have our um, prayer month this year. It's going to be in April this year. And then there'll just be a couple of sermons in May. We're doing the tail end of the book of Luke. And then there'll be new stuff we have planned for after that. So Luke chapter 22 today. And we're going to be looking at the subject of communion, subject of the Lord's Supper. Um, tied into this, helpfully, is that our last series last month has um, helped set the scene for this. You remember we did our Advent series throughout December, and that was all, all about looking at the promise, the, uh, the expected promise, the fulfilled promise, and so on. And we learned about God's promises. God always chooses specifically, but also God provides for and God ensures that his promises will always come to pass. What he says he will do, he will do. And today's passage gets wrapped up in that as well, in fact. It, it introduces us to a whole realm of promise-making and promise-keeping that is wrapped up in the word covenant. And that's what we're going to come across today. Now, the word covenant, what it means is it's a solid and binding agreement. It's something deeper and richer and more relational than simply a promise. Yeah, I promise I'll be there at 3 o'clock tomorrow. That's a promise. A covenant is something far deeper and richer and more binding. It's a solid and binding agreement. It's a formal partnership between two parties. And God makes a number of these with humanity throughout the Bible. And there's five particular covenants that God makes with humanity in the Bible. One with Noah, one with Abraham, one with Moses, one with David... And then finally, one through Jesus, which is what we're going to come to today. And each one gradually builds on the other in terms of scope and definition. So can we just have the slide up on the screen, please, Vicky? Thank you. I've just, got, I've just put them just to make it easier for you. I don't know if you want to take a photo of it for future reference, say, scribbling down in your notebooks or whatever. But um, after humanity's initial and continued rebellion from God's perfect design for living... And then God's vast judgment on humanity is a cataclysmic global flood. And then God, on the back of that, he makes a covenant with Noah, which is about preserving humanity in general. God says, I will never do the likes of that again. That's what he says. And that's a, a general covenant that he will preserve humanity from the same kind of cataclysm, if that makes sense. But then a while later, God makes uh, another covenant with a man called Abraham, this time, it's a bit more defined. It's not just a general preservation of humanity. This time, it's about establishing a family within humanity who will inherit and bless the world at large. So you can see now the scope and the definition is starting to come into a bit more focus. Do you see that? And then after that, some time later, God makes another covenant through a man called Moses. And this time, it's about calling Abraham's offspring, his family, into becoming a holy nation for the world's benefit. Yet again, it's like he's turning the focus and making it a little bit sharper. And there's more definition. There's, something's been added to what's gone before. 
Sometime after that, God makes another covenant with King David. This time he's promising that King David's specific descendant, some centuries later, would be the expected eternal rescuer, the great divine deliverer himself, God himself, who will be for all the world, not just for Israel. Again, everything's becoming more into focus and the scope and definition is being turned up to 11, if you like. And then finally, God makes a great covenant through Jesus himself, God himself, and this is his ultimate everlasting covenant with all who will receive him, eternal hope for everyone through Jesus. And that, you can see, therefore, is fulfilling the culmination of all the, pro- all the previous covenants. Each one has become clearer and more in focus, building on the one before until we reach the ultimate one in Jesus. Does that make sense? Does that help? Good. And so we come to today's passage, which, in some ways, it's a simple telling on one level of Jesus introducing what we call communion. It's like, I died, it's really important, don't forget it, do communion to help remember it. That's what it kind of looks like on the surface. But its scope and its definition are far greater when we look at it through the lens of history, when we look at it through the lens of the culture that Jesus is operating in and speaking into, and also when we look at the actual words he's using as well. It takes it to a whole other level, which is what we're going to look at today. So the words are going to come up on the screen, as well as if you've got your Bibles in front of you. We're going to look at Luke chapter 22. We're going to read kind of the first 20 verses. We're going to skip a few and explain in a sec. But let's just start at the beginning of chapter 22. Uh, It says this. It's about the plot to kill Jesus, it starts with. And it says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Now just a quick um, side note, just to explain... Uh, that first verse is it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is drawing near. It's called the Passover. Now, this is Thursday in the week. This is the night that Jesus gets arrested. And it's Thursday. It's a very particular one in the Jewish calendar. Because a ceremonial meal is happening that evening right across the country, um, which I'll explain about a little bit more. And this is coming up, and this is what they're about to celebrate together. And in verse 2, it talks about the religious leaders, doesn't it? It talks about the chief priests... And the scribes were seeking how to put Jesus to death, for they feared the people. These are the religious leaders of God's people. And yet, instead of fearing God, they fear man. And they are just so concerned, they are eager to keep their chokehold of influence on society. And they are just overly concerned that Jesus is getting too popular. They don't like it. And so they're wanting to take him out out of the picture even to the extent of having him killed. That's where these religious leaders are now in this nation. So in that context, Jesus and the disciples then have this meal. We're going to skip the next few verses because it's all about Judas. We're going to look at him in three weeks' time. I'll be preaching about Judas in three weeks, so we'll come back to these verses then. But then verse 7 says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. This is when they're... Jewish people do this meal in celebration, in remembrance of their historical release from slavery in Egypt some 1,300 years before. Again, we'll we'll look at that in a moment. So, Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And they said to him, 
well, where, where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is, my, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Again, the next few verses are about Jesus. We'll deal with that in a few weeks' time. So, two things I want us to explore over the next 20 minutes or so. Two things to help us uh, grasp and explore here. Firstly, Jesus' eagerness for this moment. He's been really looking forward to this. And he's definitely, he's, he's very much wearing his heart on his sleeve here in this moment, and what he's saying and what he's doing. So we'll look at that, Jesus' eagerness for this moment. But actually, there's a reason for it. The second thing we're going to look at is the enormity of this moment. Jesus is eager for it for a reason, not just because he's hanging out with his mates. There's an enormity to the situation that Jesus has been looking forward to because what Jesus is instigating here actually bears direct, direct impact on you and me today. So that's the two things we're going to look at. Jesus' eagerness for the moment and then the enormity of the moment. First of all, Jesus' eagerness. Let's just catch hold of Jesus' heart here. Verse 15, what does he say? He says, um, uh, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Earnestly desired. There's a determination there. There's a there's an urgent commitment. I, I, I want this to happen. I'm going to make sure this is happening. I can't wait for it to happen. But it's just a meal, right? They do this every year. We can look forward to Christmas, can't we? But we do it every year. It's still just some turkey. I'd rather have Domino's pizza, to be honest. But some people like turkey. But it's just a thing. There's it's something nice about it, but it's still just a Christmas meal. Why is Jesus so excited? Why, what's so special? Jesus... He's already planned ahead for this to happen. He talks about, uh, you'll find a man who is carrying a jar of water. And you need to follow him into the house and then speak to his master. Now, that man would have been easy to pick out in a crowd. Men did not carry jars of water. In that culture, that was a woman's job. So that's really unusual. So you can't get the wrong man. It's like, sorry, I don't know anything about this. I don't have a master in a house in an upper room. He'd be the only guy who'd be doing it. So Jesus knew about this. It'd be easy to spot. But was that, there's still an argument today, was that supernatural or was that pre-planned? Did Jesus just know there'd be a man who is uniquely carrying a jar of water and he'll happen to have a master of a house who'll happen to have a furnished upper room that would be available? Quite possibly. It's Jesus. He could know these things. Of course. But had he also perhaps made the arrangements prior? Quite possible. That's okay. 
that Jesus put down a deposit on the room to secure the booking? Maybe. Possible. And either way, the master of the house doesn't seem very surprised or snooty about the idea. He quite happily lets them have the furnished room. It happens, either way. Either way, Jesus provided. God uses supernatural and natural means to ensure that his purposes will unfold, doesn't he? He uses medical doctors and pharmaceuticals to heal us. And he also uses miracles to heal us. And we have stories of that such in, amongst us in this room, don't we? God also provides money for us through salaries and through benefits, doesn't he? And he also provides money for us, for us sometimes through miracles. Again, we have stories like that amongst us in the room. Either way, just remember, God always, however he does it, natural or supernatural, God always provides for what he has purposed. What he says he will do, he will do. And so I just love Jesus' heart for this moment to happen. He knows what's coming up that very weekend, that very night, in fact, he's going to commence it all. There'll be his betrayal and his arrest and his trial and his torture and ultimately his death and then his wonderful resurrection. He knows this is happening over the next few days and he's making sure in this moment that his people, what his people need beforehand is in place and he's eager for it to happen. But still, to you and me, living in this non-Jewish 21st century society, <laughs> you know, we can read this and it can be easy to miss the immediate impact really of what's going on here. Why is, it, why is he so excited? Even if the disciples themselves didn't fully get it in that moment, they finally got it a few days later, it all clicked into place. Actually, this moment in its context and its delivery is very, very significant and it's very, very noticeable to those who are living in that context. They'll pick up on the clues that we can miss. And so just to help us with that, let me just go through a little bit of history. Um, apologies, a little bit of history lesson. Vanessa will be very proud. Um, the date itself, this Thursday night, this Passover, annual Passover meal, that's not a coincidence. It's not just, well, there's this big annual feast coming up and it'd be a great opportunity to get the boys together and we'll start a new tradition. We'll have a curry and I'll start a new thing. It's not that. This is all very intentional. They are celebrating the Passover which is such a fundamental event in Jewish history. This is about their rescue from slavery 13, 1400 years earlier. Israel as a nation comprising of 12 tribes, and remember that number, 12 tribes comprising this massive family called Israel, they had become enslaved within Egypt's borders during what we call the Bronze Age. So like I say, it's about 13, 1400 BC. And they were treated so harshly by really abusive um, masters, uh, even to the point of there being state-sanctioned infanticide to, to wipe out uh, all their male babies in order to cull their population. That's what they tried, didn't they? It's awful. And they cried out to God, will you rescue us from this? And God heard their cries for mercy, and he responded with that. And he raised up a man, Moses, that we looked at earlier, and he raised him up to lead God's people, all 12 tribes, out of Egypt using headline-worthy miracles, doesn't he? And he leads them eventually into a new promised land that would become what we today call Israel and Palestine. 
and all the story and the journey that's happened there since. And at the time, immediately following Israel's rescue, God affirmed his covenant, his relational binding promise with them, his people. He established that through Moses by initiating a way of life that showed them, the Jews, that showed them their dependency on him for their purity and their holiness. But it also showed the rest of the world that these people belong to God and God only. That's what it does. That's what the law does. But even then, the famous beginning of that covenant is what we would call, today we call the Ten Commandments, don't we? Have no other gods before me, keep the Sabbath holy, honour your mum and dad, don't kill, don't lie, and so on. But even right at the beginning there, God reminds them at the very start that the commencement of the law, even then, begins with grace. That very first verse in Exodus chapter 20, when he institutes the law and the Ten Commandments and, and what follows, he says, right at the beginning, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, therefore have no other gods before me. The first full covenant that Israel as a combined nation lived under for many, many centuries afterwards, that was always birthed out of divine favour. Their following the requirements of that law was even then, it was never really about earning God's favour, so much as it was about living in the light of what they had been given. Even the law was birthed in grace. And so then we come to this repeated annual celebration of that very rescue, many hundreds of years later, when Jesus, God himself, the great rescuer of hearts himself, he actually initiates a new, final, second covenant with his people, one which is even more explicitly beating with his outrageous favour. And this time it's a binding promise that will last and last and never end. You see, the giving of that first old covenant to 12 tribes and their subsequent generations, that paved the way for the giving of this new uh, second better everlasting covenant to 12 followers and all who they will represent in the future, including you and me. It was promised 500 years before Jesus through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So I'm going to make a new one that's not like that. He continues, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now even just reading that, it still sounds like it's just for Israel, doesn't it? This will be my covenant with Israel. He's talking about spiritual Israel now. Because even John 3 verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever, believe, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is a covenant for all of humanity. Spiritual Israel, not a political Israel or an ethnic Israel. This is for all of us. It's available to all. And this new covenant that is written on hearts instead of tablets is for all. So you've just got to remember the journey of those earlier covenants that we listed, we had up on the screen. 
Each one was building on the other. And here is where it finds its ultimate completion. It's beautiful. God's binding covenant with his growing family is now being renewed from a temporary one to a permanent one. It's going from outward focus, ceremony and ritual and so on, to going to inward focus, it's heart transformation. It's now written on hearts, not on tablets. It's going from a national thing to a global thing. It's going from exclusive, Jews only, to inclusive, everyone is invited. And to top this, by the way that Jesus introduces it here at this very Passover meal, we discover something even richer, something so loving and so deeply relational, something that helps prove that this is not a mere contract, this is a deeply binding covenant. Because the language that Jesus uses here, as well as the moment that he's chosen to do it, it speaks volumes. The, the way he says it and the words he uses speaks volumes about how, how eager he is to secure himself a people, to clinch for himself a family who are his and who get to enjoy being his forever. The clues are in the words he uses as well, which is where we discover the enormity of this moment, which is why he is so eager. Because the reason that Jesus has such a big heart for this is because of its eternal significance and how relational it is. Because at Christmas Eve, 1992, I was very excited and a little bit nervous. I'd written a poem. It was in my back pocket. And I was driving to Queen Anne Avenue in Bromley to Jenny's house. I'd had a chat with her dad. I'd had a ring, I had a ring in my pocket. This is the moment. And that night, I got down on one knee and asked her to marry me. Random, I've no idea why, but she said yes. <laughs> got away with it. It was a wonderful moment. But it wasn't just about the moment. There's an enormity to what it meant and what it was starting. And so again, on the 16th of July, Saturday the 16th of July, 1994, I was very excited and a little bit nervous. It was my wedding day. Finally, my now fiancée, Jenny, was going to become my wife and I was going to have the utter privilege of becoming her husband. But it was never, again, it was never ultimately about that day. It was about what it was commencing. It's not about the wedding, it's about the marriage. So I keep saying to our daughter, Amy, don't put, when, it, when it comes, when it happens, don't put all the efforts into the wedding. It's about the marriage. There, there's an eagerness for the day, for the moment, but it's because of the enormity of what it means. That's exactly what's happening here. Jesus was excited for this moment to happen. I can't wait for Thursday night. But it's not because it was going to be a lovely meal with his brothers. It's because of what it commences. And now, I mentioned my and Jenny's engagement and wedding days, but again, not just because that's a helpful illustration, but because actually, literally, that's what's happening here. What Jesus is doing with this wording, he's making a marriage proposal. Marriage proposal, marriage itself is, is, the, kind of, it's like, it's the deepest, 
of relational covenants, isn't it? Because it's not bound in circumstance. Okay, well, oh yeah, we're put together because of circumstance. Okay, I'm committed to you. You've chosen each other. There's something even deeper to it. Does that make sense? There's a choice involved. And that's what's happening here in the language that Jesus is using. Let's look at verse 20. Jesus says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. He's offering them a cup. So this, this, is, this is the new covenant in my blood. He said, I'm offering you this cup, and I'm asking you to accept this covenant. I'm asking you to drink of this cup. Just re- remember that for a moment. And a couple of verses earlier, sometimes it's in a different order in the other Gospels, but in a couple of verses earlier, in verse 18, he says, I will not drink of the fruit of this wine, I will not drink of this cup again until the kingdom of God comes. I'm not going to drink of this again until then. Remember that. And then John chapter 14, verse two and, verses 2 and 3, this is related. Jesus also says elsewhere, he says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. So he's also now, he's ascended to heaven, not just because his job's done and can put his feet up. He's preparing a home, a forever home for us to take us to one day. Now remember these three things. He's offering a binding relationship with a cup and he's asking them to accept it and drink from it. He's saying he won't drink from it again until he returns to take them back to a place that he is currently preparing for them. Now all that sounds lovely to our modern ears, doesn't it? It's, very, it's romantic, isn't it? It's, it's, but its resonance goes even deeper in a very beautiful way. Now I know some of you have heard this before because I've preached on this before some years back. What Jesus is doing with that language, he's actually enacting and reciting from an ancient Jewish betrothal ceremony. That's what he's doing. And that's one that his hearers around that table would be very familiar with. Peter, at the very least, was already married. He's even been through it himself. They they would have recognized the language that Jesus was using. He's enacting a Jewish betrothal ceremony. Because Jewish... Marriages, they focus on two ceremonial aspects. The betrothal and then the ultimate marriage feast, marriage ceremony. Now, usually, modern times, Jewish weddings, they they happen together in one ceremony. Um, But in ancient times, they were very much separate. Now, for us, I was talking about my engagement with Jenny. Uh, Engagement in our modern world, modern Western world, that can be broken at any moment. We can throw the ring back at him any time. It's over, it's done. In our culture, you're not as good as married until you're actually married, right? That's how it works. In this ancient Jewish context that Jesus was operating in, betrothal was as good as declaring a couple were married, bound together for life now. They're just not living together immediately as man and wife. There's a separation time when he goes and prepares a home for them and gets ready, and she prepares herself for the final marriage feast. And so unfaithfulness within that form of engagement, within a betrothal, that wasn't just like with engagements off then. They had to go through divorce procedures to unbind it again. In fact, even Mary and Joseph. When Joseph discovers that Mary is pregnant by Holy Spirit with Jesus, they're betrothed, they're not married yet, and he still considers divorce. He can't just walk away from her. So betrothal is an ultimate binding. They're just not living together yet. And so when a Jewish man 
would make an offer of betrothal, he would present some written vows to the woman that would list all her, all her rights, all her security, how he would um, protect her, how he would provide for her, how he'd keep her safe. It's, it's, a bit, it's called a ketchup, it's often quite ornate. And it'd be, this is how I'm going to provide for you and protect you. And this is, I'm offering this, will you drink of this cup? That's what he'd do. If she accepted, he would offer her this cup of wine and he would say to her, if you accept my betrothal, you drink of this cup. And then he says, I will not drink of this cup again until we're united as man and wife. And because then he would go away to prepare a home, sometimes up, up to a year, sometimes he'd go away and study as well, prepare a forever home for them while she prepares herself for the wedding day. That's exactly the same language that Jesus is doing here at the Lord's Supper, isn't it? Jesus here is offering an exclusive betrothal, an absolute promise for eternity. He's offering his written vows, if you like. He's offering absolute security, made possible by him. And he's like, here's my cup, do you accept? Because if you do, you're mine and you're safe forever. If we accept, we are no longer our own, but we are his, which is the safest place to be. It's one of freedom and of security and healing and wholeness. Even while we await his return to take us to the eternal home that he's been preparing for us. It's right there. So as I come to close, just need to receive this, that these... We can easily skip through this and just read it on the surface, but these are more than just words with the heartfelt sentiment. Jesus' promises are always backed up by his actions, and he did just that over the following few days to ensure that this covenant wasn't just sealed by his intention, it was sealed by his actions, it was sealed by his own blood. He would die in order to conquer the power of sin, he took on what we deserved and he made this a, a binding blood covenant. He, he say, in dying on the cross, he, he's saying to us, I am 100% committed to you. And then he rose again in order to not just conquer the power of, death, the power of sin, but to conquer the power of death. That I'm making us a forever home and I'm giving you eternal life with me. That's what he's doing. And so receiving Jesus as the only one who can rescue you from your selfish frailty, from the brokenness that we all carry, and trusting him to be the only one who can satisfy and provide for us into eternity, that makes you his. It's the safest place to be. It's that simple and it's that deep. So Jesus spells it out right at the end there. He says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. It's a betrothal offer you don't want to miss. One, one day he will return and take us home to the place he's been preparing for us. But in the meantime, we can still trust in absolute confidence whether we feel it or not, doesn't change a thing. The fact is that we are his and no one can change that. To be betrothed is to be as good as married. That's what he's intending. And so what he says he will do, he will do. And what he says he has done, he has done. If you're his, you're his. So when it comes to communion, we're going to enjoy some of the bread and the wine in a moment.
we need to remember that it's, it's not just about the importance and the joy of the moment and thanking him again and that kind of thing, it's, which is important, that's, that's what it's about. But it's also just neat, helpful just to grasp on the enormity of what it signifies. It always goes far wider and far deeper than we ever sometimes give it much thought. That's why Jesus says in verse 19, do this in remembrance of me. Because we need constant reminding, don't we? That our security and our confidence and our ultimate healing and our fulfillment is only ever found in him. And therefore we need to reenact this moment on such a regular basis, don't we? Just to ensure that our hearts are recentered and recalibrated. Life gets in the way, anxieties get in the way, busyness gets in the way, our hearts drift. Oh yeah, communion. Oh yeah, thank you Lord, thank you Jesus for dying for me. Next thing, that's what we do sometimes, don't we? We just need to reenact this moment on a regular basis to ensure our hearts are centered on Jesus, on his work and his work alone, trusting in him and him only for now and for eternity. Amen? Amen. So we're going to do that now. Let me pray for us. And then we'll gather around the table. Jesus, we thank you. Thank you, thank you. That you laid, your, laid down your life for us. You loved us so much. You saw us and you wanted us. And you've laid down your life for us to show that you are 100% committed to us. We are often less than that. And we repent of that and we apologize for that. And we ask for your help to not be that. But Lord, we know that this covenant is bound by your grace, your commitment, by your blood, that we are securing you. Whatever we've done, whenever we trip up, we are securing you. We are always yours, yours forever. And we thank you, Lord. We are astonished at your love and your mercy and your goodness and your favor. Lord, help us as we gather around the table in a minute. Lord, we ask that You'll help us just to grasp just something tangibly, just a, a bit more of what we've been missing that helps gird our loins for the week ahead that throughout this week, whatever we face, we can know that we are yours. We are yours forever. No one can undo that. We can't undo that because you are good, you are good forever and you are committed to us. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.